In today's programme, we hear how medicines are being developed here in Cambridge. We talk to a chemistry expert working in the industry, and we think you'll be intrigued by techniques that take some of the guesswork out of making pills. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. And let's get right on with today's guest who works in pharmaceuticals, or more accurately, as he calls it, drug discovery. He's Sean McKenna. He works in Cambridge. His name will be familiar to many, but we'll come to reminding you why later in the chat. I started off by asking Sean about his job. So I work for a drug discovery company in Cambridge. We work towards trying to find possible drug molecules for fighting diseases like cancer and various central nervous system disorders. Drug discovery has an incredible history, really. I mean, this this goes back thousands of years, you know, before the times of Jesus when people would be advised if they were suffering from a fever to chew on willow bark or there would be a recreational or health reasons to use poppy sap and obviously there's been scientists throughout the years who have tried to isolate the active ingredients found in these natural products so the willow bark gives rise to salicyclic acid which then gave us aspirin oh, and right. there's something like 40,000 tonnes of that is made a year and, and get used very cheaply and very importantly for anyone who's suffering with a headache Things like uh, opium have given rise to uh, morphine and there's, uh, there's heroin and codeine. And this, I mean, drug discovery is it's an old area of interest, but it's something that uh, as our technology and as our science and as our understanding of the world around us has grown, mm. we've become a bit more sophisticated at uh, trying to tackle the diseases that uh, ail us as a species. A commonplace approach in industry for, for the last 20, 30 years to take a massive library full of compounds uh, and screen them against a certain biological target and basically see whether we get many hits from that and then you can start optimising from there. Now, the work that I do is actually an evolved approach of that, which is uh, called fragment-based drug discovery. Okay. So... Drugs are compounds of around uh, a 500 molecular weight, which sounds like a sort of arbitrary measurement. Mm -hmm. But if you accept sort of 500 molecular weight to be about the size of a drug, most drug companies have taken compounds around a 500 molecular weight and they've tested it against their biological target and some of them hit and some of them don't. And then what they'll do is they'll try and improve their hits and turn those into drugs. But the problem is that when they try and improve them, they often add extra bits on top of the drug. So you go from a 500 molecular weight drug, you might go up to a 600 or a 700. And while that might make the drug a better activity, more potent, it might also make it a lot more difficult to reach its biological target. Now, of course, you've got to remember that when you take a drug, you don't take, let's say, 200 mg of ibuprofen that 200 mg of ibuprofen isn't all going to reach your brain. A load of it's going to be chopped down by your liver and excreted before it can get anywhere near a site of action. Okay. Some of it won't be absorbed. Okay. You've actually got to appreciate that there's a real number of steps for a drug to go from being a pill in your hand to actually working at the site of action. And uh, the properties of that drug 
really influence whether they're actually going to do the job that you want them to do. So going back to this 600 or 700 molecular weight drug, all of a sudden, by adding all these bits, you suddenly made it that much more difficult for the drug to reach the area where it needs to work. And so it's caused a problem, really, in drug discovery in that we haven't been able to find drugs that are both potent enough but also bioavailable enough, which is a sort of measurement of ability to get into your biological organism and and work. What fragment-based drug discovery does is that it actually takes a step back and goes, well, if we want to add to a certain drug, our, you know, sort of hit compound, we need to start on a smaller scaffold. So rather than screen a 500 molecular weight compound or a series of 500 molecular weight compounds, you test ones that are around 200 molecular weight. And when you get hits from there, you can start adding to your 200 molecular weight scaffold. And the bits that you do add then get you up to around 500. And what you've done in that time is you've built in your potency, but you've also built in bioavailability. And it's a sort of it's a more sophisticated way of going about drug discovery. But uh, one of the one of the big issues of it really is that when you're measuring very small molecules, it can be very difficult to detect them. Give a for instance of a target that you might be you've tested against known targets. Uh, when I refer to a biological target, these are more often than not these are proteins. Because proteins basically act as uh, little machines, you know, little workhorses within cells and, you know, sort of within the body to, to perform a, a function. And there, there are thousands and thousands of proteins responsible for each different biological function. And normally, you know, these will work for you billions and billions of times over. But what happens is every so often these proteins are made wrong and more often than not, these can, can cause disease. Because all of a sudden, when a protein isn't working correctly, the whole balance of your, of your organism goes askew, and it's what can result in things like cancer. That's a, that's a perfect example of when a cell just starts doing something ever so slightly wrong, and it can start growing far too fast, it can start replicating far too fast, it can resist the natural death of a cell. If we're able as scientists, to track that back from, let's say, a cancer developing, we can look back and go, that has happened because this protein has started going wrong or has started being overly produced or underly produced. And as soon as we understand the biological reason behind a disease, we can start working out a way to chemically alter that, Uh, either try and remove the problem or try and correct it. That's what we mean when we talk about a biological target. More often than not, it's a protein, and it's a protein that we're trying to fix. Taking some drug as an example, what can you do to it to make it more interesting? You can change an existing drug and change the actual chemical structure, and obviously that has significantly greater implications because as soon as you've changed one part of it it's a different drug for example codeine which is a morphine alternative the the only change to it is the addition of 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 an extra methyl group which is about as small an extra group as you can add to a compound and what it does when it gets into cells the liver actually chops off that methyl group so what it's done is effectively it's taken it's cut the codeine molecule it's removed the methyl that you've introduced And all of a sudden, it's morphine in your body now. 
what the implications are of codeine and the reason that codeine is considered safer than morphine to give and what's why you can actually get codeine over the counter is that it only has about 10% of the efficacy of morphine. And so by making subtle changes to the chemical structure, you can actually affect how your drug works, how it works in the body, and the sort of effect and, and potency on, on its biological target. My granny used to say that if you take an aspirin and you haven't got a headache, then that's bad for you because the aspirin doesn't know where to go. <laughs> There's definitely some truth behind taking something that you don't necessarily need. Now, aspirin's a really interesting one just on its own. The really funny thing is that the regulations that are in place these days, if someone was trying to take those drugs to market, having them never existed before, mm -hmm. there's a good chance they would never make it. Oh. Because some of them are not selective enough. Some of them have sufficient side effects that a regulator could just say, no, you can't market these. I think that's really interesting because you'll know, I mean, there are so many major pharmaceutical groups these days and you, you'll hear about uh, job losses and about cutbacks and, and uh, these, these really grim statistics from even some of the major pharmaceutical companies. And so many times it can be because they've got a drug so far along the way to being close to market and then there's a certain reason that that drug has been withdrawn. Like, it might be shown to, to have an adverse side effect, which, of course, is, it's, it's really important to remember that. I mean, you only need to look back to the 1960s and thalidomide. Terrible cases like that when not enough understanding has been had before a drug has gone to market, and, and that should be avoided. But at the same time, it's also very interesting to think that a drug that came to market over 100 years ago almost certainly wouldn't make it these days for the regulations that are in place. Mm -hmm. I, I think we ought to add just briefly that, that we're not doctors. No, no, we're not. No, no. This is uh, from a, a, a slightly stood to the side point of view. Don't, don't take any of this as uh, professional medical advice. No. We're really interested in, in drugs and how you could possibly customise it. Can you look at a chemical and say that would be effective against that? Um, as a society, we've developed technology to the point where we can make much more sophisticated calls on whether something is going to be effective or not. Now, there's certain techniques that I use or I benefit from in my professional life, things like X-ray crystallography, which is a fantastic technique. It's really amazing. X-ray crystallography, you take a crystal of your compound or your drug sat in the biological target that you're trying to aim towards. So let's say this is a compound sat inside a protein. You basically grow crystals of that and you use x-rays to analyse those crystals. And it's got to a point in this technology where you're able to develop at least really high-resolution images of your compound sat in this protein mm -hmm. to the point where you can actually see which interactions it's making with the protein. And the moment you can do that, you understand intrinsically what the good parts of your drug are and what the bad parts are. And if there's a space that you can grow towards or a new area that you can grow towards, then you do that. And if you understand that there's, let's say there's, there's one specific piece of the drug which is interacting in a really favourable way, you can retain that bit but change everything else in the drug. We have less of a scattergun approach 
a much more of a sort of laser-pointed, really sophisticated way of designing our drug, testing it, and being confident that it's going to do what we want it to do and leave everything else alone. How do you see the immediate future? Do you, do you see it as a slow future? Give, give us some sort of picture of whether you're going to sort out cancer before I get it. <laughs> the situation we are in at the moment reflects the, the wider economy and the wider society. But let's not forget that at the same time, people are still getting jobs in the industry. People are still working hard in the industry and they're still finding sort of new and innovative and exciting ways of trying to tackle diseases. You know, I, I don't think that the picture is necessarily grim. The way that I've experienced the drug discovery environment, I think that there are a number of changes underway, but I think that those changes are, are, are entirely positive. And I think we're simply just being a bit more canny and a bit more savvy about the way we do things. Definitely not all rosy news, and, and in an ideal situation, every scientist who is out there is employed and working hard to cure the next disease. But I think, I, 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 th I think that we will continue to strive in the right direction. And when the economy picks up again, you, you may see a bit more money floating around for new companies and for new ideas. On the topic of cancer, which is obviously something we've spoken about a bit today, we understand more about cancer than we've ever done. And we understand that it's actually a very resourceful disease and that there is no one cure got a, a number of good friends who when when I catch up with them they ask me have you cured cancer yet I always try and explain that cancer is certainly not something that gets cured but we find more and more sophisticated ways of treating it and whether that be through uh, new chemical entities which of course you know sort of I'm and you know thousands of other people are working towards or whether that be in working out new ways of combining chemotherapies with other therapies we're, we're definitely in the best position we've ever been to fight cancer and we're only getting better well we didn't mean to get round to grim near-death topics but thank you very much sean that's an absolute pleasure you're listening to the science show on cambridge 105 thank you to sean mckenna there talking about drug discovery in the pharmaceutical industry you mean as opposed to uh, drug discovery on street corners and pubs? Um, I should ask, where do you spend your spare time, Roger? Well, I was just actually reacting to this term uh, drug discovery, you know. After our interview, Sean and I had a little chat about what gets people into science. It's one of our things here on this show. And, you know, some people say it was their teacher. Some people say it was their parents. One person told me it was a book they read. So what did Sean say got him fired up about chemistry? Sean mentioned that actually neither of his parents were scientists and that his big moment of conversion was to do with anesthesia at the vet's surgery. Oh. Well, the idea that intrigued him was that one simple chemical, which was based on petrol gas with bits of fluorine attached to it, could knock you or the pet flat out when a slightly different chemical had no such effect. Ah, very interesting. Well, Sean, you did the right thing by pursuing your interest in chemistry for the good of humanity. But, Roger, you stay away from those street corners and no experimenting with chemicals in the garage. OK, will do. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm.
You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Kreese. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>